Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capital Hill Briefing on how to think about capital gains taxation. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Before we get started, I want to briefly bring your attention to just a couple of things. Uh, First, global tax revolution, the rise of tax competition and the battle to defend it. Uh, The issue we're talking about today is a subset of the many issues it covered in this book, and I'm sure that Dan will touch on uh, the relationship between the two. Um, it's a really great look at the way the global economy has become integrated over the last couple of decades in particular, and uh, how our tax policy affects uh, our standard of living and uh, other things that we care about. And also the Cato Handbook for Policymakers, which I don't have a copy with me today, um, it's uh, our primer on all the sorts of things that Cato scholars think should be done about different policy areas dealt with by Congress. Uh, There's two chapters about taxes. There's the federal tax reform chapter, which was a handout today, and also the international tax competition, which is like a mini version of this book. But there's also other economic policies that are covered as well as foreign policy, civil liberties, uh, the Constitution, and so on. Uh, We're going to do something a little bit different with today's briefing for the Q&A. If you have a question but you don't want to raise your hand and, uh, and ask it out loud, if you want to email it to me, you can do so. My email address is kcouchman at cato.org, and that's the spelling of my last name. So uh, our first speaker today is Daniel J. Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a top expert on tax reform and supply-side tax policy, and a strong advocate of a flat tax and international tax competition. Prior to joining Cato, Mitchell was a senior fellow with the Heritage Foundation and an, econo- an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. He also served on the 1988 Bush Quail Transition Team and was Director of Tax and Budget Policy for Citizens for a Sound Economy. As a co-founder of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity, he also narrates educational videos on economic issues that can be found at freedomandprosperity.org, and uh, I would highly recommend them to you all to check out. Dr. Mitchell. Well, thank you, Kurt. Uh, Of all the introductions I've had, that truly was the most recent. Um, I want to focus on just two things today, uh, because if we're going to think about how to think about capital gains taxation, actually three things. I'll start by just describing what is a capital gain so that we're all on the same uh, page. It's very simple. You buy something, you sell it in the future. If you sell it for more money than you bought it for, you have a capital gain, and in theory, you're supposed to be taxed on that. And our argument is that capital gains taxation is fundamentally wrong from an economic perspective. Uh, But before actually getting into something about capital gains taxation, I want to step back and talk a little bit about the economics and why it matters. Because if you understand the economics of growth, Uh, you'll understand why capital gains taxation is misguided. There are only four ingredients to an economy that determine the output of the economy. The four ingredients are the quantity of labor, the quality of labor, the quantity of capital, and the quality of capital. Those are your four ingredients, how much labor and capital you have and how good are those increments of labor and capital. Uh, Now, there's one other thing missing, though. When you have these four ingredients, you need a chef to mix the ingredients together. And you can have a very bad chef 
You think about central planning in the old Soviet Union and what a disaster that was. They had lots of labor, they had lots of capital, but they mixed it together wrong and they wound up with very, very poor economic output. Uh, if you have a very good chef, though, an entrepreneur, someone like uh, a Steve Jobs, he takes labor and capital and he mixes them together in ways that you get high quality uh, from those uh, ingredients. And so you want to make sure that you have capital and labor used in a way that's going to give us the maximum economic growth. Because what is economic growth? Economic growth is we have this much income one year and we have more income the next year. What's a recession? A recession is, is the opposite. And the reason I say something that should be so obvious is because oftentimes in Washington, politicians are talking about, well, we need more, say, government spending to stimulate the economy. Or maybe not even that, they'll say we need more consumer spending to stimulate the economy. That's putting the cart before the horse. What you need in the economy is more income. And then if you have more income, whether people then spend it or whether they save it, doesn't really matter. The whole purpose of growth, the whole definition of growth, is how do you get more income in the economy? And that's why we should always come back to thinking about how do we get more labor and capital and how do we increase the quality of the labor and the capital in the economy? There's nothing else. Even socialist and Marxist economists, they will all agree that it's in any, any output in your economy is determined by those factors. And so you want to make sure you get the best performance uh, out of that. And this is where capital gains taxation comes into the equation. I already described what a capital gains tax is. Let's now put it in, in the context of the overall tax picture. Let's say you earn income and you pay tax on your income. All of you presumably get a paycheck, most of them I presume from Capitol Hill, uh, and you see that you have a net pay after you, you, uh, you pay your taxes. With that net pay, or what we sometimes call disposable income, you have two choices. You can either save your income or you can consume your income. And again, we're talking after-tax income. And of course, uh, saving your income is basically deferred consumption. So sometimes economists say uh, you really have a choice consuming your disposable income today or consuming your disposable income in the future. And in theory, that should solely be a matter of your own individual preference for consumption today versus consumption in the future. But now let's introduce taxes into the equation. And imagine that I have a flow chart up here. And here's your income. You pay tax on it. You have disposable income. If you consume your disposable income, for the most part, the federal government leaves you alone. We have a few little excise taxes here or there, but we haven't made the European mistake of a value-added tax. So if you earn income, pay tax on it, and then consume your after-tax income, you're left alone. What happens, though, if instead of going on this track and consuming your after-tax income, you decide to save and invest your after-tax income because you're going to consume in the future instead? Unfortunately, the tax treatment is considerably different. Between the capital gains tax, the corporate income tax, the dividend tax, and the death tax, there are as many as four different layers of tax on income that you save and invest compared to income that you consume immediately. Now, why does this matter? It matters because every single economic theory, as I already said, but I want to stress this, 
Every economic theory agrees you have to have those ingredients of capital and labor to have economic growth. And especially if you want more growth in the future, higher output in the future, you need to make sure you're setting aside some of today's income to finance tomorrow's growth. And yet the people who decide to make that decision to do what, of course, they perceive to be in their own self-interest, but what is also in the national interest in terms of more economic growth, those are the people who are getting taxed at a much heavier rate. So in effect, what we have with our tax system, and the capital gains tax is a very bad example of it, but it goes beyond that to other forms of double taxation. What we have in our tax system is a very heavy bias in favor of current consumption compared to future consumption. And you should only want to do that if you want to undermine and reduce capital formation in your economy. And how does the capital gains tax do that? And I'll go ahead and and try to wrap up on this point. Remember, we had the four ingredients, quality and quantity of labor, quality and quantity of capital. And then we have our chef, the entrepreneur. When you have a capital gains tax, you are specifically saying that people who are supplying more capital to the economy are going to be subject to an additional layer of tax that they wouldn't get hit with if they just consumed their after-tax income. And we're saying to the entrepreneur who's in charge of mixing those ingredients together, if you are successful, if you take risks, if you go ahead and, and do something that's good for the economy and you create wealth, then we're going to tax you. And think about what a capital gains tax is. Let's say you buy a struggling company as an entrepreneur, and somehow, because you have some special talents and ability, you turn that company around and it rises in value dramatically. Why does a company rise in value? Let's actually think about this for a second. Why does any financial asset rise in value? A financial asset rises in value because there's a market expectation of higher income in the future. I mean, if you thought that a a stock or a bond was going to generate less income in the future, you'd want to pay less for it. You only pay more for an asset if you think it's going to generate more income in the future. Well, what's a capital gains tax then, in effect? A capital gains tax, in effect, is a preemptive tax on a market expectation of future income. So no matter whether you look at a capital gains tax uh, before the fact or after the fact, it's clearly a form of double taxation. And again, and I'll close on this, Every single economic theory, it doesn't matter whether you're a Marxist or a socialist, they all agree that you need capital formation for economic growth, and yet our tax system, not just the capital gains tax, but the capital gains tax is probably one of the worst examples. Our capital gains tax punishes and penalizes the people who are doing the very thing that our economy needs the most of. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Of all the speeches I've heard you give, that was the most recent and one of the shorter ones, in fact. Uh, next up, we have uh, Richard Ron. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and chairman of the Institute for Global Economic Growth. Dr. Ron has been a member of the board of directors of the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority, which regulates the world's largest offshore financial center, held senior positions in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce of the United States, uh, led, the American Capital, uh, led the American Council for Capital Formation, served as U.S. co-chairman of the Bulgarian Economic Growth and Transition Project, served as a member of President Reagan's first quadrennial Social Security Advisory Council, and was an economic advisor to President G.H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign. He's a private sector entrepreneur, 
serves on the boards of several private companies and nonprofit organizations, and has taught at a number of leading universities. He has also testified before Congress on economic issues more than 75 times. Dr. Ron. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, some of you noticed while Dan Mitchell was up here talking, I stole part of his cookie. That was a tax. He's unhappy about it, but it's for his own health. If you bought an asset in 2004, let's say a stock or a piece of property, and you paid 100 for it, and if you, told it, you sold it in 2006 for 200, how much income have you had? Gain. Nobody here knows. Hill staff used to be smarter. <laughs> well, the IRS would say you had $100 of income. And here I have the Constitution of the United States, which um, I think many of your bosses have never read, given what they do. And I'll just read the 16th Amendment to you. It's very simple. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. They said income. Well, the price level doubled between uh, 1984 and 2006. In 2006, with that $200 you had, you could buy no more in goods and services than you had uh, with the $100 back in, ni- in uh, 1984. <clears throat> it's not income by any definition, not by any economist definition. You can go to the dictionary. It's not income. I do not see where the Congress has the legal basis, or the IRS, really, to lay a tax on merely inflationary gains. Uh, and we've never actually had a really good court case on this. There's court cases that sort of danced around the issue, but we need to have a really good court case on this. <clears throat> and I keep hoping one of these years I'll have a big enough capital gain that I can actually do it myself and challenge the IRS. But unfortunately, um, <clears throat> uh, I've been hanging out with Dan doing too much public policy rather than making money <clears throat> and haven't had to be able to do it myself. <clears throat> But so I, I argue there clearly is no moral basis. There is no legal basis, uh, particularly taxing a portion on which is merely inflation. <clears throat> we also know just from empirical experience, and I go back to the 78 capital gains cut. And at that point, I had just gotten out of graduate school and come to Washington and was running the American Council for Capital Formation. And we worked with Congressman Bill Steiger, who unfortunately passed away a year after that, and uh, Congressman Jim Jones. It was a very bipartisan effort to reduce the capital gains tax rate. Jimmy Carter wanted to increase it up to 70%. At the point, at that year, it was already 40%, and we had a 12% inflation rate. At a 12% inflation rate, um, you, uh, you double the price level every six years. 
so most people were paying taxes on inflationary gains rather than real gains. <coughs> so, 1977, capital gains tax rate was 40%. The U.S. government received $7.8 billion in capital gains tax revenues. In 2007, this last year we have data for, 30 years later, the capital gains rate, the maximum rate, was 15.7%, and the U.S. government brought in $122 billion in capital gains. Now, even assuming the price level roughly tripled during that period of time, that is still a six-fold gain in real income. There's a chart. You can pick it off the, off the Treasury website. <clears throat> it shows the capital gains tax rates and tax revenues. It, over the years, we went up and down. <clears throat> uh, we dropped from, in 1978 from 40% down to 28%, and revenues of uh, the first year after the cut went up by $3 billion, from $7 billion roughly to $10 billion. Um, then it was dropped again under Ronald Reagan in 2002, and the revenues kept increasing up to $50 billion in 1988. <coughs> Stupidly, the Congress increased the tax rate from 20 to 28%. Revenues immediately went down. And then <clears throat> we had the capital gains rate cut again in 1998, was the first effective year. Revenue soared up to $80 billion. <clears throat> Anyway, we have an <clears throat> inverse relationship between the capital gains tax rate and tax revenue. It's a perfect example of the Laffer curve. I assume you all know what the Laffer curve is, but this one illustrates more than anything else. So what do we know? Higher tax, capital gains tax rates reduce revenue. Uh, they are not levied on income. Much of it's not levied on any real definition of income. Uh, therefore, I think it's unconstitutional and because there's not a constitutional wealth tax, and that's what it really becomes. <clears throat> and I think it's just plain, downright immoral. And the nice thing about having my, I, I do a weekly column, and now I can say these things because I say these about your bosses who vote for such things, and you can warn them that many of us, including the Wall Street Journal editorial page, <clears throat> will be beating up on them if they go ahead and try to increase the capital gains tax rate because it's going to lose revenue. It's one of the dumbest things it can be done by the Congress. <clears throat> Our colleague Steve Enton, who runs the Institute for Research and Economics and Taxation, better known as IRET, and Steve was a former senior, tax, uh, senior economist at the Treasury, um, they've just come out at uh, the end of last year with three studies on capital gains. Those of you who have any interest in it, just go to the IRET website. It's I-R-E-T. Dot org, You can get the studies off the website, or if you just ask them, they'll give you the hard copy studies. They've done <clears throat> micro-studies. Uh, Paul Evans, who's an eminent economist, uh, just did the update on the micro-study. Again, it shows all the harmful effects of capital gains, as Dan was talking about, and how it's not going to increase revenue. They've done a macro-study, a good model study, Again, shows the same thing. 
The ideal capital gains tax rate is actually zero. Now, that may sound strange. You want to maximize revenues. But the amount of income the rest of the economy gets, and then you'd more make up it from the personal income tax, corporate income taxes, and elsewhere, because the economy would go booming ahead. Capital gains, we've got more evidence than any other tax rate changes of the up and down over the last 40 years of what happens. And um, any member of Congress who votes for an increase is either ignorant, stupid, or mean. <clears throat> and I will say that, you know, I, I, I say it on TV, and, I'm, and I'll, any of them who do it, I will name them by name, because the empirical evidence, it's all here. It's overwhelming. I've never seen anybody refute it. And um, so tell your members. Educate them, because we'll hold all of you responsible, because we know they're all very busy, and they can't learn everything. But on the capital gains issue, and if you don't have it down well, come back to Dan or myself or any of our colleagues or Steve Enton over at IRIT, and you'll get all the empirical, theoretical, and other evidence you need. Thank you all. Thanks, Richard. Um, I brought up Dan's book before we got started, and... Uh, um, since we are competing with the rest of the world for capital, it's interesting, on page 38, there's a figure that shows the top individual capital gains tax rates in the OECD, and um, we are kind of towards the top of the pack uh, if the rates reset to 20%. Um, in the lower portion of those that have one, uh, under the current rates at 15%, but then there's a bunch of countries that have a zero percent capital uh, gains tax rate. Um, among them are Austria, Germany, Mexico, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Switzerland. So it's not unprecedented to do that. And uh, I think for whatever reason, policymakers in other countries seem to have gotten Richard's message that the optimal tax rate for that is zero. Uh, 